Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. I'm Tim Ryder from Metsmerized. Back with me today, uh, our dear friend, Mets Daddy. That's what you folks all know him as. To me, he's my buddy, John Sheridan. What's happening, pal? Not too bad. Long time, no talk. I'm glad to be back. I'm sure some of the listeners aren't, but... <laughs> oh, we don't... Hey, sarah, sarah. <laughs> yeah, we're happy to have you every time, man. Uh, just joking. <laughs> yeah, I guess we've been um, we've been kind of bringing in a bunch of the MMO guys. I've been lucky enough to have some, some really terrific guests come on, and uh, yes, this is long overdue, and we're certainly happy to have you, have you back. Uh... So the week, a week in Flushing, uh, we're going to extend it a little further than Flushing, but uh, we, we weren't on earlier in the week. I was had a little cold. You could probably still hear it in my voice. Um, we're going to go ahead and start right off with uh, the tragic, tragic loss, um, losses in the Bryant family and the, um, uh, oh, geez, John uh, Antelli. Uh, please, John, help me out here. What's the, the college coach's I- name? It's Antobelli, I believe it's pronounced. Ant- yes, thank you so much. But just uh, absolutely tragic. Um, just it, it's awful. And then John, I know me and you are both of a certain age where we saw Kobe Bryant's entire career. Um, just the level of joy he brought us as competitors, at least personally. Uh, there was a connection there, just as a fan. From a, I'm, I'm a diehard Knicks fan, and I loved Kobe Bryant, the player. Um, you know, there's certainly um, a cloud over his legacy, and that's just kind of – it is what it is. got to tell the whole story, and I certainly don't want to get into all that on the show, but um, just a tragic loss. Uh, your, your thoughts on uh, on Kobe Bryant's passing, John? You know, I wrote about it on, you know, my site, Mets Daddy. The thing I keep thinking about is Vanessa Bryant. And the two daughters. What people aren't talking about, he has a newborn daughter. I mean, we all have these memories of Kobe Bryant, good and bad. We all have these memories. This girl is going to grow up with no memories of Kobe Bryant. And that, to me, is the most tragic thing of all. Um, It's heartbreaking. Um, And I feel, you know, in terms of Vanessa Bryant, how can you feel anything but you know, absolute remorse and shock. I mean, for her, she's, you know, that's, that's awful. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention is the Boston Red Sox for that John Antebelli. That coach has a stepson and a daughter who survived them. They do have a GoFundMe to help provide financial support for the two of them. So for, I see that. So I will reshare it on my page, on my Twitter, um, and in the comments, MMO comments section to the Simply Amazing podcast uh, for anybody who would have any interest in making contributions to that family. Because fortunately, the Kobe Bryant family does not need financial support, just emotional Yeah, no, it's going to be a a long road back. I mean, that type of... um that type of loss or that those types of losses uh, that's going to shake any family to its core. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the Antibellis, this is uh, a brother and a sister who are now without, uh, without, without parents, without their other sister. Um, just absolutely just tragic. And as a father, as a fan, 
I think this this hits all of it hit me right. You know, it it hit me hard. Yeah, you know. and I I think um, for myself, it hits me harder as a dad than it did a sports fan. Um, that's not to say it didn't hit me as a sports fan. I remember him watching going for what was it sixty one at the Garden. Or 60 at the Garden. Um, 60 or 61 at the Garden. That was in uh, 2009. 2009. The, the, um, the Garden was chanting MVP for Kobe in February. Yeah, I, I, I remember. That's, that's what stuck in my head from that night. And I actually remember um, thinking of LeBron. LeBron was the first um, free agent process. They were laughing at Donnie, at Donnie Walsh. Uh, who, if you remember, came out of the hospital just to do the meeting. And the second time, he didn't even meet with the Knicks. Kobe met with the Knicks when he was a free agent. And he was like – and the Knicks, I remember, were putting a presentation together to say to Kobe, we can get you more money on a league minimum, on a veteran's minimum, if you come here just because of the endorsements. Kobe didn't come, but Kobe took the meeting, and Kobe was never afraid of that spotlight, was he? No, never. And he, it's almost like he wanted that spotlight. Um that first title, I think it was also 09, without Shaq. Yeah. That just, oh, my goodness. It, watching him secure that title, it, just any sports fan, even if you're not a sports fan, it's just it brings a smile to your face to see someone achieve that goal. Uh, and he did it so many times, 81, 61, putting up 60 in his last NBA game. I was just, just about because to he say had, that. Just because he had the will to do it. And, and and we're allowed to curse on this show. He pretty much said, fuck you. This is how you're going to remember me. And, folks, I'm sorry for for using salty language, but, boy, it, it, he was just a joy to watch as a basketball player. It was a joy to watch him evolve as a human being. Yeah. Um, well, and, it, that's, and that's the takeaway, one of the takeaways. I mean, I'm not going to be dismissive of what happened um, in Colorado and um, everything. But the one thing I come away with, was he did change as a human being after that. Whether or not he should have gotten that chance, we should all have that conversation at another point. But he was a completely different person who learned from the lessons. I remember him um, using homophobic slurs, and then he became a big advocate um, working with Glad, um, correcting people on Twitter about the use of the language. Um and as they say, and I think it was, um, um, I think uh, Danielle McCartan, uh, one of the overnight hosts for WFAN, um, she's at Coach McCartan, I believe. Um, she said her, she was the first one who pointed out, I remember her saying her biggest takeaway is the biggest advocate of uh, women's sports. And just the way he went all in on being a dad was incredible. And as a fellow father, I respected that of the man. Oh, there may, I think there may or may not be every dad, to, right? Exactly. I mean, and the fact that he got the helicopter so he could be a dad is what makes this whole the worse. Well, you know, he. Most of us are never going to make. Um, you know, we're never going to be wealthy from our from our day jobs like Kobe Bryant was able. We're never going to be able to support our families like Kobe Bryant could support his family. Um, Correct. But we all, as fathers, we all strive to be able to spend all those important, terrific moments with our kids. Like, I have two daughters. My daughter's 15, my, and my youngest is, is going to be 10 this year. I mean, <laughs> this hit directly home. Like, it, it, it's just, you know, 
it, it's so sad to see someone young die. It's so sad to see a child die. And, you know, when this person's been in the public light, they're pretty much my, my whole, I was 13 when he was drafted. Right. And I was basket. I was sports crazy. I still am. <laughs> and, um, you know, we all watched Kobe Bryant grow from an 18 year old kid into an NBA champion, into a father. And now he's gone. And that's still, it's, it's still almost unbelievable, but um, there are, there are positives to be taken away from not the situation, of course, but from, from his life, because there are lessons to be had. You, you mean, some of the quotes that he, like the interview, he, he should have been an inspirational speaker. He didn't need to be, but he really should have been. Boy, he just he had a way to fire people up, and boy, all the all the clips coming out in the last few weeks, it was just uh, in the last few days, it, it's really just um, it, it's it's so nice to see the outpouring of love on under such awful awful circumstances. But um, you know, it, 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 this is life, right? Um, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, hey, it's yeah. just, just, oh, what a kick in the gut. But hey, um, let's go on to the, let's go on to the, should, should we use the worst transition we've ever used in this show's history? Speaking of losses, let's talk about Jerry's Familia's weight loss. Yeah, oh, that was good. <laughs> the that worst transition good. in podcast history. <laughs> um, big shout out to, to Pat Regazzo. Regazzo? I, I'll go Regazzo just because. It's uh, Regazzo. It's Regazzo. Oh, sorry, Pat. My apologies, buddy. But um, congratulations, uh, our fellow Metsmerized contributor. Um, he got his first byline in the New York Post on, um, excuse me, on Wednesday. This is, uh, it's really, it's it's very exciting. And he, he put together a real nice story about uh, Jerry's Familia shedding a bunch of weight in the offseason uh, with eyes on, I guess, getting his uh, getting his game back on track. Mets Daddy, are we buying the um, the resurgence of Jerry's Familia? I'll preface it with this. I'm buying it because of Jeremy Hefner. I'm buying it because they're going to fix the ball. I'm not buying it because of the weight loss. Every time I hear that, you know who I go back to? Mo Vaughn. Remember oh. 2003? You know, they were like, I, I remember Mo Vaughn, well. look at how much weight he lost. He's going to be an amazing pitcher now, uh, amazing hitter now. He's going to get his stroke back. He didn't get a stroke back. No. Because because he was shot. He was <laughs> even, shot as a pitcher. Even young Sheridan agrees. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the, this little pain in the. <laughs> oh, he's he's always he's another welcome guest. Yeah, but um, but you know, just talking about Familia, you know, people don't realize how you know how much of an impact the change in the ball had on especially sinker, slider pitchers. The reason why pitchers like Jacob deGrom are not affected is deGrom learned to pitch up in the zone. Pitchers like Seth Lugo weren't affected because they went up in the zone, and they also, um, it, for some reason, it didn't affect curveball pitchers. So, or, you know, so those guys weren't affected. But guys like Enwin Diaz, um, Jerry's Familia, like we just brought up. Uh, even Noah Zinder- Syndergaard, who was, relied heavily on a slider. How, how often all season long do we hear him going, basically, I don't know what happened to my slider. Well, like, we all know what happened, but... Um, well, now we definitively know. 
Yeah, but that's oh, sure. Thing. But as soon as these are professional pitchers, as soon as they put the ball in their hands, they know, oh, something's not right here. But you know, you have to adapt. And I think by the end of the year, guys were getting used to whatever differences were in the ball. But hopefully, you know, you'll see guys like Diaz and Syndergaard and Familia, um, and p- pitchers across the league regain that slider because it's it's a weapon, especially for a lot of the guys on this roster. It's it's a real it's a real weapon and uh, could really you know. If if those sliders keep sliding as they were in the past, it could be a big thing for a lot of um, a and, lot of major leaguers who are trying to keep a job. That could and, be a huge. Yeah, another thing to touch upon. I don't know how many people saw Justin Dunn on with Brian Kenny, and how he said essentially when he went to the Mariners organization, it was this huge culture shock because the Mariners have increasingly incorporated things like. Soto and all the other technological advances. And he detailed how the Mets haven't been quite caught up. Well, now bringing on a Jeremy Hefner, the Mets are pushing towards that now. So now all of a sudden, we're going to see a Rapsodo effect, hopefully with pitchers like Familia and others. Um, I think you would think so. That's the hope. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's the ideal situation. Um, I, I'm curious. I, I want to say that they had begun that process last year, but maybe with someone like Hefner, and I believe when Ocardo came in, it was probably similar, and, and Gutridge, I'm sure, also had a hand in that. But You know what? Um, you bring up a really good point with Ocardo. Um I'm not taking anything away from Phil Regan. The guy has been in the game since World War II. Um, for a reason. Um, One of the big changes that I think got really undersold last year was Jeremy Accardo um, and his impact using this data. Um, And we saw it especially with pitchers like, um, I'm trying to to think off the top of my head, Stephen Matz is the perfect guy. When Accardo came, Stephen Matz, remember he moved into the middle of the rubber. He yeah. started changing how he attacked batters, different release points. Um, I personally, as an aside, I think Steven Matz is going to take just that step forward we've been waiting for, for like, since what, 2016? Well, to I, be fair, I mean, he, he had a really terrific second half last season. Um, oh, I know. I'm saying I think he's going to be more of that for – 30 starts next year. Well, yeah. Oh, I I think that that's uh, certainly on the horizon. I mean, if you take out, I believe there was three starts in the second half. Uh, over those three starts, he gave up 18 earned runs. Um, right. If you, of course, we can't do this in real life, but if you take out those starts, <laughs> he had a 1.75 second half ERA. And, and the thing I look about with that is one of those second half starts, if you recall, he was coming out of the bullpen. Um, uh, well, he he had two relief appearances in June, and August in Pittsburgh was his first time that he really got touched up since then. Right, and then but he had that, and then you know honestly, I, his worst starts and correct me if I'm wrong were at the end of the year. Correct, I'm sure there was a little bit of fatigue, especially with the bullpen the uh, the bullpen transition. Yeah, I guess well that was right before the um right before the All Star break. 
he made his 14 starts in the second half. His walks were down considerably. I actually I got to cover FanFest for Metsmerize last weekend, which was a mm-hmm. great – it was – what a great, great – and by job. the way, you did a phenomenal job. Oh, As you thanks, did with the podcast, buddy. you did a phenomenal job with the oh, um, with covering FanFest. It really, uh, the Mets really they they nailed it. But um, I, I got to ask Stephen Matz about that, and he couldn't really you know he didn't really pinpoint as to what changes were made to improve his control, but he did tip his cap to Regan and Accardo for um for I guess presenting him with information. He went on to talk about Hefner and what Hefner brings to the table as far as digesting the information. <laughs> hey young Sheridan. <laughs> That's okay. Um but I kinda see what Ricardo does or Ricardo did last year and probably will continue to do. As something similar to what Luis Rojas was doing as the quality control coach. No. He's taking the information yes. and the data from the front office. He's bringing it to the coaching staff and the players. And I have to imagine that Ricardo probably had a similar job description where he would just kind of funnel that information and make it a little easier to um, to interpret from the player's standpoint. And I think Hefner's only going to kind of strengthen that pipeline. It's really I'm, – I'm looking forward to – the ceilings of this staff, which are already ridiculously high, getting even higher, because with more information, it's just—it's going to be a better approach. It's going to be a better game plan. It's going to be more precise. I'm looking forward to it. You know, if you see to a man in the clubhouse, everyone loved the hire of Rojas, and you know, we all talk about guys he managed through the minor leagues. It wasn't just the Alonzos and the McNeils. What about Marcus Stroman? Marcus Stroman came to the Mets in July, late mm. July, and all of a sudden, he loved it. He loves Rojas. You know, he's not one of the guys you would go, oh, well, you know, he blah, 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 blah. You know, all the excuses for people who didn't want to give Rojas the chance he deserved, you know. Um, but in terms of Stroman up and down the line, there's a reason why everyone thought Luis Rojas was a superstar in the making. Um, and I think in the end, as much as I love Beltran, I think he's a great all-time Met. I hope this doesn't cost him his Hall of Fame chances. I think Rojas is exactly the guy who should be who should have been leading this team anyway. And I think this is one of these situations where a bad situation, you're probably better off because of it. Well, I guess time's going to tell on that on that front. Um, I I was a big proponent of Beltran and Rojas both leading this team. Beltran as manager, Rojas as as his bench coach. But this was again, this was just when Beltran's name was first mentioned, and right. uh, you know that was like a lottery ticket. I couldn't believe I almost hit on that one, but uh, it, it was. Um, it, I'm not going to say that losing Beltran was a good thing. You know, if if the Mets turn around and win the World Series this year, maybe we could look at it that way. But it, it certainly set this team back, whether it was just a couple of weeks or whatever the case may be. It set this team back. It was in the middle of their offseason. It was a very, very hard time to have to scramble and get things in, in order and then move on to spring training, which kicks off in, you know, under two weeks. Right. Um, that being said, I think Rojas is the ideal guy 
that they could have chosen here. Like you said, he knows the organization well. He was on the major league staff last season. So this is almost like there's just been – it's just going to be a seamless transition. And that's what it feels like. And if Hensley Mullins – is it Mullins or Mullins, MD? I think it's Mullins, but it's Mullins. I'm not okay. 100% sure. Me neither. But all, so, all indications are that he's staying, although reports are the Red Sox are slow playing uh, their managerial search, be partially because they're waiting for the report to come out, because I think they need to know how much they need to clear house. And yeah. that may actually have an impact on do we give it to somebody internal or do we have to go completely external? Yeah, Chris Cotillo from MathLive.com. Um, he's been keeping everybody pretty much abreast of the situation. Back on January 22nd, uh, it was reported that the Red Sox had not requested an interview with uh, with Mullins, with Mueller. Right. Um, and then just a couple of just days ago. Just say Bam Bam. It, it makes it clearer. Bam Bam. <laughs> bam Bam. Uh, and just a couple of days ago, it was confirmed that, uh, that they still had not spoken. Uh, whether that's going to happen because they are waiting for, you know, the other shoe to fall, uh, we shall see. But, boy, that experience next to him, that could really be a great thing. I'm also, you know, if he does, because, you know, a, a career coach moving on to become a manager, you can't be mad at a guy for doing that. It would really no. give Tony it would give Tony DeFrancesso the opportunity to slide into the bench coach job if that's the, if that's the route the Mets we're you know we're going to go if uh, if we'll say Bam Bam <laughs> if Bam Bam were to uh, were were to take a job elsewhere. Um, and oh, I think absolutely. That could be great too. And you know, um, De Francesco was a guy who I'm somewhat surprised didn't get the job. Um, somewhat because this is a guy who uh, well respected and he's had the experience being a um, being an interim coach with the Reds. As a matter of fact. Uh, his first career win as a manager came against the Mets, which I know is a little huh. something special for the New York native and Seton Hall uh, alum. Huh. You learn something new every day. I was not aware of that. Yeah. And and I'll just throw out speaking of Seton Hall, and, um, you know, that's where the great um, Gary Cohn's play-by-play and their top ten in the country. So yeah. for us Seton Hall fans, we couldn't be more excited about our man uh, – Miles Powell, but I'll digress to the Mets. <laughs> no, exciting times for Seton Hall, man. Yes. But um, so Starling Marte, this is another another little hot topic of the week. Uh, ended up going to Arizona for for two very good prospects. I I, I admittedly don't know much about either of them. Um, now. Some folks were up in arms that, oh, the Mets, they could have got him for prospects. Why wouldn't they do this? Well, John Hayden of MLB Network reported that uh, the Pirates were asking for two of the top, two of the Mets' top five prospects. Uh, who those two are is unknown. But I know you had a couple of, of players that you had your fingers pegged on as to who they might be. Um, and, you know, yeah, I don't know if they were these specific players. Oh, um, yeah, but you had a pretty good idea. This, when, when I threw this out there, I was just trying to relay the message to people, like, this is what the comparable package is um, in terms of what the Mets have. And I preface this, again, with all of these comps, organization to organization, are impossible to make. 
because, you know, you know, compare Jared Kalenic to another player in another organization. You can't. You know, yeah, it no, doesn't like, make uh, sense. Uh, the, Mets, the Mets number three is not equal or, you know, greater than the Diamondbacks number three or the Pirates number three. There's no way to quantify them. Right. So the way I looked at it was what the what the Diamondbacks got was a still raw, highly projectable shortstop prospect with power. That's Ronnie Mauricio. And they got a big time arm from this year's draft, who is one of the best, who was one of the best, who was one of the best um, prep arms in this last draft. That's Matthew Allen. So if you look at it from a Mets perspective, their comparable package to that would be Ronnie Mauricio and um, Matthew Allen. Some people have said, well, no, it's more Mark Vientos. All due respect, I like Vientos. Vientos is closer to Rule 5 than – um, and he is to the MLB pipeline, yeah. Right, no, uh, and he's, he's – he's, and the other aspect to think about is he's not a shortstop. Mauricio's a shortstop. Comparing a third-base prospect to a shortstop prospect is not the best of times. But don't you think uh, Jimenez and uh, Wolf could have got it done? And would that be more palatable for you? The, here's, here's the problem with that. The – it's very clear the Pirates were looking for very – they were looking for one of two things. They were looking for young, controllable players now that they could flip in mm-hmm. the – like get something out of and flip or hopefully be part of the next core. So almost like, you know, being like what, again, bad comp, but in terms of Mets land, what the Mets did with David Wright, like – Let's hold on to this player, and this will be our big-time player when the next wave comes. Yeah, so that, your Ozzy Albies, your um, uh, who's the guys that the great. White Sox just locked up? But yeah, lock them up great. young, and yeah, great, yeah, great, great, great comp with Ozzy Albies. People were screaming at the at the at Braves, "Why are you holding on to Ozzy Albies? Why are you holding on to the guy who just um." The pitcher who just left. I can't remember his name. Who signed with the Angels. Um, why are you holding on to these? Hmm? Oh, who just left Atlanta? Yeah. Uh, he was a Mets killer until he wasn't anymore. Who? Uh, who oh, 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 Tehran. I was about to say Jair Jurgens. I'm like, no, no, that's not right. <laughs> no, yeah. Julio Tehran. People are with the Braves. Why are you holding on to Julio Tehran? Well, you need someone for when the next wave comes. So it looks like the Pirates are either looking for, like, a Brandon Nimmo, a guy who's a, who's a borderline all-star now, can be next year, who can help flip it. And in terms of a Nimmo, you're getting a future – you're getting a guy who's going to teach people how to play the right way. So they were oh, looking yeah. for I would, that. I would never have included Nimmo in any of those discussions. That would just be the, counterproductive to what – Complete non-starter. Yeah. But then on the flip side, what they were looking for were prospects that were, like, complete, like, high upside. They were getting rid of Starling Marte. So they were saying for Starling Marte, who, look, I think at this point in his career, Starling Marte is a solid starter, borderline 
all-star caliber player under contract at a under a good two-year contract, essentially speaking, who may or may not be in the beginning of his decline. You have a player like that. You have two options. You either trade for the best you can get, or you go and you do what the Pirates did. And I happen to agree with Ben Charrington did here and said, give me your biggest wild cards. Give me the guys with the highest possible ceiling because I'm going to build, I'm building an organization here in Pittsburgh that's going to take players like that and make them more of a sure thing. Yeah. And that's what the Pirates did. And, and that's you, why you for think, the Mets, think, it was uh, – yeah, and, and, and to get to your point is I don't think Josh Allen's that pitcher. Uh, you know what I mean? Josh Wolf? Josh Wolf, sorry. I don't think Josh Wolf is that pitcher. I, see, I like Josh Wolf, and I would have been I hesitant. do too. I would have been I, hesitant I, to move him, but I think he has enough upside that him and, and Jimenez would have – I think that would have got the job done. I really do. I'm being honest here, seeing what the Pirates' plan was, I don't think they had interest in either. Yeah. No, I'd because, probably right. Because I think they look at Jimenez as a solid regular slash utility player. And Josh Wolf, look, I like him too. He doesn't have number one starter ceiling right now. Look, he no, can he learn didn't. a pitch. He can gain some velocity in the next year or so. And that will change. But sitting here, I don't think – I think they wanted players who have high, high ceilings. So while I think Jimenez and Wolf would have been a very reasonable package to give up, um, I don't think the Pirates were taking it. Yeah, I think yeah, I think maybe you're right. I think they – I'm sure it sounded like they, met, like they were discussing it uh, back and forth for uh, for a good amount of time, and I think the Pirates just kind of moved on to the next, you know, the better deal. And uh... and you know what, I I think I personally think there was a trade that the Mets could have gotten Marte that I think I would have lived with. Um, I think there's one that the fans would have lived with, but this speaks to a larger problem. And I think it was Josh Finkelstein who brought it up on Twitter. It's kind of like this is the problem with the way that Brody Van Wagenen has handled the farm system. When you keep training away guys for role players like your, you know, Keon Broxtons, your Jake Marisnicks, when these trade opportunities roll along, you don't have this level of player anymore to be like, hey, you know, take this guy. What if we threw this guy into a deal? Like, you know, what if they were able to throw in this guy or that guy? Well, they don't have it anymore. You know what I'm saying? So I get that. Go back to the Keon Broxton guy. Adam Hill, probably the lowest rated prospect in that trade Mm-hmm. was flipped for a starting catcher. Yeah. I mean, think and, and about that. I and, think and, that's, you know, I think that's Brody mismanaging um, in a system that wasn't his. And maybe, you know, arguably he didn't have enough or didn't even really care to learn about 
who was in the system. I kind of feel like he went into this looking to clean house to a certain extent. And well, that's, I, it's borderline irresponsible, but I, if he would have gotten uh, if he would have gotten returns off of Diaz and Cano last year, I think we'd still be a little sore about Kellenic, and I think we're always going to be a little sore about Kellenic. Oh, we always will be. I think so. Even if you know Cano could have hit three thirty last year, and Diaz could have had seventy five saves, um, I, I think we'd still in, in five years we're going to be like, oh damn, we could have had Kellenic. <laughs> but you know. In a perfect world, Brody's moves could have worked, and they still could work. But I think oh, they absolutely, they absolutely. And look, I'll be fair to Brody here, and I'll say this: the change in the ball, snake bit Edwin Diaz. I'm not going to sit here and pretend Edwin Diaz is not an absolute monster. Oh, he's elite in, in almost every way. I'm not going to sit ev- and. This is what people we were we were spoiled by certain people like Yuana Cespedes as Drubal Cabrera who came through. I mean that's one thing Sandy Alderson really really did very well. Sandy Alderson for some reason was able to identify players who could just come to New York and be great. You know that didn't need that level of turnover that we normally see. But you remember Carlos Beltran, his first year in New York was an unmitigated disaster. It, it was could bad. not go yeah. worse to the point where he literally broke his face in his uh, first. That's how bad things happened in New York. That was um that was probably the most gruesome thing I've ever seen on a baseball field. Short of, Oh, I remember. Oh, wait, wait, who was the first baseman for the Nationals who broke his leg sliding in the field? Nick, um, he was he used to be a Yankee. Nick, uh, oh, Nick, uh, what's his face? Nick Green? Know, no, no, not Nick Green. No, not he was Nick a first Green, baseman, though. but he slid. Nick Johnson. Uh, there you go. Thank you. He made a, a, a slide in the in like shallow right field, and his femur snapped. That was gross. But uh, oh, remember Beltran, uh, the collision between Todd Huntley and Cliff Floyd at first base when uh, oh, Floyd yeah. was with with the Marlins, with and the that's Marlins. why Cliff Floyd became a left fielder. Huh. Um, Didn't but, Derek Lee also take a really nasty hit at first base for Chicago? Uh, I, I don't pretty, remember. Yeah, he did. He did. I wanted to say it was also it was also the Marlins. Maybe he was with the. Uh, I don't know. We I got think off he track. Was just, <laughs> yeah, but but the point being is these players. A lot of players have uh, Curtis Granderson. This is a guy who was an All Star with the Yankees. He needed a year to get acclimated to the Mets. For some reason, the New York he Mets. Did, wait. He needed a year to get acclimated to City Field because that was just a cavern. Well, that that's that too, that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the point being is, some guys need a year of adjustment. And between the between the ball and Diaz, to his credit, admitted he needed help getting accustomed to the city. I mean, pitching in Seattle, Washington, going to places like Oakland. And going to, you know, to a certain extent, Houston is not as big a deal as pitching at City Field with, you know, 40-something thousand going berserk against the Nationals and Phillies. It's a different animal altogether. And well, I and I, I think to his credit, you know, he, he fessed up, but I think he's being a little too hard on himself. I think the, there was a ball change. 
And I think that messed him up more than anyone. Well, yeah, because I, I, I guess I don't think as a ball player you can, you know, come out and publicly blame the ball. Um, if it's proven that it was changed, I think even then um, – it's tough to go out there and just and just hey, I'm going to hang my hat on this excuse. It's, yeah, and, and no one's going to want to buy it, even yeah, no matter exactly. how true it is. It's going to be and it's going to be received know, poorly because Noah Syndergaard is about as honest a human being as there is. Yeah. and when he talks about <laughs> certain things, that. people call him a crybaby, and it's like, okay, maybe he's saying things you don't think he should say and you don't want him to say, but at the end of the day, he's speaking the truth. And John, I think me and you can both relate to that pretty well. <laughs> it's not what everybody wants us to say, but we're still going to say it because that's just what we think and what we do. And, like, <laughs> and, and that's the thing. If a player's being honest with you, you have to listen. And, and that's where I'm at with like different things like Diaz talking about New York, Syndergaard talking about Ramos. Players don't come out and say these things if they're not true. They don't admit vulnerabilities unless it's unless it's true. Doesn't it because, make you doesn't it make you think though that if Noah's coming out to the to the press with all these grievances that he he might not be as happy as he seems here? Here's what I think. I think he is happy here. I think he had a year he was not happy. Um, and clearly I. There's some weird thing between him and Brody, even though Brody was his agent. Um, because Brody came in looking to trade him, and um, he had, you know, even though in 2018, Brody's sitting there telling the Mets, make sure Devin Mizoraco is Jake's personal catcher. He's comfortable with uh, Jake wants to pitch him as a Rocco. Um, he becomes the GM in the Mets, and all of a sudden he's like, I don't believe in personal catchers. What are you talking about here? Um, I don't know if there's, there's some weird personal rift between Syndergaard and Brody. Um, I don't know if Syndergaard um, was just beyond frustrated last year. I mean, between Ramos, who doesn't have the pitch framing profile, um, that matches with Syndergaard's ability or if it was the different ball robbing Syndergaard of his slider. Um, I'm not sure. He, he was just not happy last year. The thing I don't know is how much of that was the Mets and how much of that was the year. And I think we're going to find out how much of that was the Mets and how much of it was just his bad year. I'll say this, though, Luis Rojas' manager is going to do a lot of good to get him happy again because he does so. really well managing these personalities. Oh, I think – and I think that – I agree with you that I do think Noah does enjoy pitching in New York, and um, I also agree with you that there's a distinct possibility that there is a rift between him and management. But it kind of – you know – for they're professionals, go out there and perform, and you know you start putting up a sub two ERA, and miraculously all these kind of issues just disappear. It, it, it you know winning solves everything. Good, good, good pitching, and and you know producing on the field, it, it kind of 
silences all the critics. And, and Noah has a lot of critics, and a lot of those critics are there for undue reasons. Cause, I agree. Boy, when the guy is – when he's on, he's on. Has he not really been as consistent as we'd all like him to? Yes, and that's that's a truth I think he'd admit. But, um, boy, he's getting closer and closer to free agency. You have to think that he's got to put together one of those uh, just jaw-dropping seasons um, to kind of and, build his value back up. And I'm going to say this. This is – what's today's date? January 30th? The, uh, we're recording on the 30th. We'll be, uh, we'll be out right. on tomorrow, the 31st. One of my – and I, I've made this prediction before, so you can take this with a grain of salt. One of my early predictions is I think this is the year Syndergaard wins the Cy Young. I'll write that one down on the wall. Hold on. And I'm That's what we saying, do, by the way. When, when we yeah. make a wager, it goes on the wall. And you're on the wall, Andy. And, and by the way, that's not saying that DeGrom's not going to have a monster year. So you think, still, you, so you think Thor's going to have a good enough year that he's going to – He's going to supplant DeGrom as the reigning Cy Young Award winner. Two-time reigning Cy Young Award winner. Two reasons. Oh, I like it. Okay, okay. I'm going to give you two (laughs) reasons. The first reason is I believe Accardo, with his bringing the analytics to the Mets, I think Syndergaard is the pitcher who is going to benefit the most. I think with them fixing the ball, I think Syndergaard gets his slider back and his stuff is going to be back to where it was in 2016. Finally, this this last one is just, this is how voters are. They sometimes just get stupid voter fatigue, voting for the same guy over and over again. Um, so for a certain extent, we saw R.A. Dickey benefit winning the Cy Young that year over Clayton Kershaw. Um that's not to say Dickie didn't deserve it, but all of a sudden you get this great narrative of R.A. Dickey with the great knuckleball. This year you get the narrative of Noah Syndergaard finally fulfilling his potential and being Thor. And by the way, he's the personality they're going to love when he we, – we, we all love Syndergaard when he's pitching dominant. Because he has the exact personality we want him to have, you want an ace pitcher to have. Yeah, so, meet me, meet me six feet, sixty feet, six inches away. That that guy, exactly. we like that guy. Yeah. And if he's going to be that guy, that's going to help him get votes. So I'm not saying I am not saying under any circumstances Degrom takes a step back. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I don't think he takes a step back in the slightest. What I'm saying is I just think that's how good Syndergaard can be. The caveat here is he needs to listen and buy into what Ricardo's selling. If he's going to be obstinate, he's going to have a 3-5 ERA next year. But and that's, yeah, that's, that's, not the, that's not the Syndergaard that we, we, we know. And I'd be happy, you know what, I'd be happy with like a 3-1, 3-2 Thor. But I honestly believe. Syndergaard has this strive to be great. Oh, yeah. We've seen it. We, we've seen I, him get angry when, he, when he's not on. We've seen him come out and just obliterate people. I he's got it in he him. Has this, <laughs> I think he has this strive for greatness, and I think he's going to get it this year. That's, yeah. um, that, it's going to be a tall task, man. It's hard to it's hard to usurp such consistency that DeGrom brings. And um, – and you know what? Just I, I want to echo your point that you need Syndergaard to buy in. 
I think that part of Syndergaard's kind of um, his inconsistencies have been due to his buying in. To, I guess I don't want to say too many schools of thought, but I think he's very coachable. It's, it, it it appears that he's very coachable. It appears that he's he, he's willing to learn. Um, I, I think just so. kind of think he's being fed. He was maybe being fed too much information. And now that that's all kind of being streamlined, I think that he's going to respond well. I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you. I think he's going to be the one, one of the guys to really benefit. I think we're going to see Strowman um, and his magical cutter. I think cutters Strowman's can... going to have a monster year. Yeah. I, I read that Metzmerized piece on his cutter, and <laughs> I, I couldn't have been more excited. I wanted the season to start. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, we're excited, but, man. This is going to be good. And, and I'll say this: Rick Porcello is a. Ma- I'm not under. I'm not overselling this. He's a massive downgrade from Zach Wheeler. Massive. Yeah. But he, he's gonna have a good year. I I agree. I think in a low pressure role, which is going to be towards the back end of the rotation, I think that Rick Porcello could have. Um, he could have a really good effect on this uh, on this group, and I know that we we're not going to go ahead and say Strowman replaced Wheeler because they were on the same rotation last year. Right. But let's just say hypothetically that's how we're looking at it: is that Strowman replaces Wheeler in the three spot, Matt stays in the four, and Porcello's in the five hole. And, and let's just say that we look at last year's opening day rotation, and he's flipped out with Jason Vargas. So I know it's unfair to say, okay, Strowman is, is Wheeler's replacement. And it's, it's incorrect, and it's not accurate. Well, it well here's, 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 what, here's what people who make the false argument, but you're making the correct argument, is what you're saying is the 2020 opening day rotation is probably as good as, if not better, than the 20. The 2020 version is better than the 2019 opening day to opening day. Opening day to opening day. And I think that's the only way that you can compare this and make the comparison. Because you and, can't say, oh, well, in the second half last year, you know, you had both in there. And that's true. There's no way around that. You can't say that Stroman replaced Wheeler because they were together last year. And and but, the uh, argument and then the thing is then you argue from there, which – and this your main argument for that – leading to the Mets make the postseason is that I don't think people realize what a drain Jason Vargas was on last year's rotation. They'll go, oh, well, you know, Mickey pulled him out too soon and his ERA was fine. (laughs) That's not the case. Vargas was terrible last year. You could only go so far. If you get a starting you can only trust to go five half the time and you have a bad bullpen behind it. You don't just mess up, you know, those games, whatever. You're screwing up the bullpen and the rotation for the rest of the series. You're asking pitchers to go too deep to compensate. You don't have this reliever available or that reliever available. You know, yeah. this is one of the things where I thought Mickey Calloway got a little too much unfair criticism. I mean, look, he, he deserved his criticism. <laughs> Nobody's going to say differently, but – Managing a rotation where every fifth day you get a starter who you completely can't trust and you ruin an already bad bullpen once every five days. That's why the last two years the Mets have imploded in May and June, in May going into June. 
Yeah. Because yeah. at that point, the bullpen's on fumes. What yeah, do you expect them to do? Every time you bring in a Vargas, there's the ripple effects, the ripple effects of a an overused bullpen. And, and sure, you can make the argument that every time a, a Zach Wheeler has a three-inning start or a Stephen Mass has a three-inning start or, or Noah Syndergaard comes out after four, you're doing the same thing. But with Vargas, 86 with location sometimes only gets you so far. You know, his changeup was – I'm not his biggest fan. He's not Bartolo Colon. Exactly. Exactly. Bartolo I couldn't, I couldn't, Colon. That's a perfect parallel. Bartolo not Colon, parallel, say. His, his floor was five innings. That was yeah. his floor. Ceil- Vargas's ceiling was five innings. And, yes, I know everyone, he threw a complete game shutout, whatever. He threw yeah, one that was complete a game shutout. And that was only because the, the, the time traveler was around. Exactly. <laughs> it's the only reason that happened. It was this. The, it was the, the glow from that guy. It, right. it was a Vargas glow up. Um, so, but you know, when you look at this year's rotation, I just look. I, I see a, a complete rotation. Um, and, and we don't know I what's going to happen. I see a bullpen. I think a war. I don't think that was necessarily the case last year. And by the way, I'm not, I don't trust this bullpen as far as I can throw them. This one it's, now? It's, yeah. Oh, I'm so happy with this bullpen right now. Don't bring me down. Oh no 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 no. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying you should be down. I'm just saying I still don't trust them because we're well, still we're relying. Fans. We're Mets fans. We don't trust anything. No, but uh, I'm being realistic. I mean, nobody has seen Batansis pitch yet. If Batansis I'm throwing 96. So I'm going to be the first one to say the Mets are winning the World Series. <laughs> it's a long road. Let's let's pace ourselves. But no, I I'm I'm not. That, honestly, Tim, that's not hyperbole from me. If they have chances coming out throwing 96, all of a sudden you have two high high end relievers in Lugo and and um, Batansis. Yeah. When you have Look at 2015 and 2016. If you have two absolute high-end guys with a strong rotation, you can make the postseason. But but here's the thing, bro. But they have four. They have well, four. They, they could have. have they could have four. No, they no, could no. Have four. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go just just based on the the ceilings of all four of the guys we're talking about, which is Patantis, Lugo. Diaz and Familia, those are four closer level guys. I know I'm um, echoing the front. You forgot office Justin here. Wilson there. That's five uh, just, closers. Justin Wilson is my ideal setup, man. I, I I think Justin Wilson could close. But, but what that's... I'm saying is he has proven his he has proven he has the metal to be a closer. But to go to oh, your yeah, point, metal. if everyone is as good as they should be, those are five guys where you can go any day of the week. You close today. You think Brody's just kind of ripping his hair out because it's too many ifs? Oh, he built the team with too many ifs last year. He did, but he made such a talking point of no more ifs, no more ifs. This year is just, and it's, trust me, this is a, I, I think they're heading into the 2020 season with more momentum than they have in quite some time. After last year's second half, uh, everyone's development, really, everything's kind of on the right track. Um, I've never seen a team spend under $25 million in an offseason or comparable to and go into the season with so much talent. 
that's just – I think they're doing a nice job of building a complete roster. Um, everything has to fall right. I know that's the same story across the league, across any professional sports, uh, even in business. Everything has to break the right way. I think oh, yeah. this is a group that if everything breaks the right way, this roster could leave the rest of the NL East in the dust. I really do. This, believe this could be another 2006. Oh, don't don't tease me with that. That was such no, a you know, year. I don't big, care about the ending. I don't care. I think I think me and you had this conversation. I don't yeah. care about Beltran strikeout. 2006 was magic. All the wins, all the le- all the clutch hits, everything. 2006 was magic. I don't care how it ended. A World Series if would have you been were great. yeah. If you were let's say if you were born after the Mets real heyday, 2006 was exactly what 1988 was. Uh, I was five in 1988. I don't remember it all that well. I was seven in slash. I was I was seven turn eight in 1988. It was my first real um, opening day to final game of the season season as a fan. Um, to make the long story short, the Mets were great in 1988. Nobody can touch them. And then as we saw what happened with Oral Hershiser. Yeah. We saw what happened with Oral Hershiser. And there was exactly what Jeff Supon was in the in the NLCS. Yeah. Good. Oh, and, nice that's exactly and that's, that's exactly the case. And that's exactly the case. Except the difference is Oral Hershiser was supposed to be that. Jeff yeah. Supon wasn't. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense. And it's the, and it's the absolute difference. It's yeah. almost like Bruce Hurst in the 1986 World Series. <laughs> Bruce Hurst almost ruined that 1986 World Series. Yeah. Well, I think MD, and I think – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish up. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say I think we touched on everything, and it sounds like daddy, like daddy duties are overcoming our time here. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, that's okay. Somebody's no, that's all right. Well, we got some good cancer. stuff. Hey, we got some good stuff. And and young Sheridans are always welcome in, on the show. And in typical kid fashion, he's calming down. <laughs> oh, of course. All right. Well, um, let me look. Let me look down on my thing. We have the DH talk. Um, yeah. We have. You want to come back on next week for a quick segment on DHs? I'm sure everyone wants to hear your input. We can. I. I think we're now that we can do it now if you want. Oh, cool. All right. Excellent. Okay. All right. All right. So I think I think I want to start this talk by prefacing it with your final conclusion. I know where your final conclusion is on this, and you're 100% right. Ooh. We love baseball. I, I get a, no preemptive, a preemptive you're right. Oh, man. I'm going to tell my wife after this. I'm going to be like, guess what I got? And you know what she's going to say? Well, it's good somebody gave it to you. <laughs> oh, she's going to tell me to cherish it. She's going to keep that yes. thing in a fucking bottle. But um, I'm going to preface this. I am as hardcore National League fan as they get. I am going to watch baseball no matter what, DH or no DH. Exactly. I hate it. And if you go to my website, Mets Daddy, I did an analysis. All of the DH arguments don't hold up to scrutiny. They don't. They simply don't. 
Well, that what do you said, uh, okay. All, all the all the pro DH, all the pro universal DH. Okay. Um, go through them one by one. The first one, um, want to see pitchers? Well, the National League has higher attendance figures, so clearly that's not driving people wanting or not wanting to watch. You yeah. can say people don't want to watch, but the fact is, more people watch the National League style of baseball. Uh, you know, pitchers get hurt um, playing. Name the pitcher injuries. People keep going to Chen Ming Wong. Well, that happened over a decade ago, and it happened stepping on third base. How is that substantively different than a pitcher running across, grabbing a ball from a first baseman, and stepping on first base? Yeah. And by the way, if your big example is Chen Ming Wong, it's an injury that happens maybe once a decade. We went 2010 to 2019. Who's the other pitcher who, who got hurt running the bases or stepping in the batter's box? I mean, it's a freak accident. Well, Max Scherzer um, took one off the nose last year. In the bag. And, he, he, was, and was, he pitched. It was BP. Right. Oh, did, he miss, did he miss one start or no? He may have missed one start, but right, either way, you know, I, I dig it, and um, and, and, there, and there, are, there are more. Um, DH causes uh, DH leads to more runs. Both the NL and NAL last year averaged four point eight runs per game. Um, uh, what are some of the other ones? I'm I'm going off the top of my head for some of these. Um, oh, the other one was pitchers ruin rallies well yeah but they get two at bats a game and that's going down with the increased um bullpenning um i mean last year steven strasburg led all pitchers in plate appearances he averaged 2.3 plate appearances per game um and when you compare um national league pinch hitters to american league ninth place hitters so people who would be up at that same point in the game, it was a 78 um, wins created plus for the NL pinch hitters to a 77 uh, wins created plus to American League ninth place hitters. Um, oh, and my personal favorite um, was um, Major League Baseball is the only one who has pitchers hit. That's actually not true. The Japanese Central League um, has their pitchers hit, too. And so now we're at a position where the two highest-level leagues in all the professional sports have pitchers hitting. Um, throw in AAA and AA, where NL teams play each other, they have the pitchers hit. We're saying five of the highest – four of the highest leagues in the game. I mean, do we want – Major League Baseball to be more like the Australian leagues or like Little League or college baseball? No. So, look, here's where it goes to. If you want to have the DH, it's always sold as an inevitability. It always fails, but sooner or later, it's probably going to happen. I'm going to hate it. Um, I'm still going to watch, but for my kids and my grandkids, they're only going to know baseball a certain way. And um, the question is, for Rob Manfred, do you really want to dramatically change the game when it has shown to have, have moved upon 
your revenue streams or your attendance or your run scoring. Um, and that's yeah. where I come down to on it. See, all right. So for my entire life, I was with you. I, I was just, no, this is, this is the traditional way baseball should be played. Um, this is this is National League Baseball, and this is it should remain National League Baseball. I felt this way up until, and it's not a specific time; it's not a specific moment. Uh, I gradually, over the last, I would say, probably in the last two or three years, I just realized that I would I would be okay with it. I, I don't even like it, it; wouldn't even bother me. Now, I am intrigued by the idea of this hybrid DH, where you have a designated hitter up until the starting pitcher comes out of the game and then at that point it reverts back to your double switches and pinch hitters and, and such. Um, I, I'm intrigued by the idea of that. I believe Jason Stark for the athletic was the first to put that one out there. And I'm, I'm really into that. I'd love to see, I guess the full parameters of that. Um, I think it could work, but if they're just going to go ahead and implement a universal DH, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know the 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 revenue and stuff and the and the attendance. I think that is what it is. Nobody, you know, pays ads. Nobody pays more in ad money because this league has a DH or this league's pitcher hits. Or nobody comes to the park just to see a pitcher hit. But um, I, I just think that you know, as a as an entire fan base and Major League Baseball fan base, I think we or National League fan base, I should say, I think we'll get over it. In, in in a matter of games, I, I by the end of an interleague series, which I I don't like interleague series. I think they should have done away with that a few years ago. It's just it's stale now. Um, either do it the whole season through, and you know chop down those nineteen games you play against division opponents. It's, it's something for people to chew on. You know what I mean? What do you mean? <laughs> if, if you if you're a traditionalist, yeah, right, and you hate bullpenning, the universal DH under Jason Sark's plan is your is your godsend. Oh, because, oh, I didn't even think about bullpenning, which I love bullpenning, by the way. I think it works in the right situation. But that would pretty much wipe out the idea of the universal of the of the hybrid DH. Of the hybrid DH, it's the only thing that can kill bullpenning. It's the only thing that will. And by the way, I'm with you. I like bullpenning because I like strategy. And 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 you know what? It's strategy. It's strategy at at its finest. (laughs) And you know what? I also love a pitcher going nine innings. I am someone who loves baseball in every shape or form. I just prefer my pitchers hitting. I love the chess match of the late innings, matching up relievers to pinch hitters. Do I leave the Do I leave my pitcher in for this extra batter? Do I double switch here? I like that aspect of the game. I'm probably still. I will still definitively watch it if they have a universal DH. Oh, of course we're going to watch it. We're all going to get but, over it really fast, and we're going to realize that nostalgia is the only thing that's holding us back. I don't think it is, though, because <laughs> because it's just an inferior product. 
It really is. It, when you take the strategy not, out of the game, it's inferior. But it's not it all the strategy. It it's not all the strategy. It's the double switch. I mean, Mickey Calloway, he, he barely got the hang of it. It took him two years. But that's the thing. It's it's not just the double switch. It's the late inning pitching matchups. It's the late inning pinch hitters. How far do I let a pitcher go? Um, stuff like that. It Most of your strategy in baseball is tied to the – pitchers batting um that that's at least the way i see it um other people might not uh and that's fine and and i'm gonna say this if you are someone who likes the dh and doesn't like pitchers hitting you are fully entitled to your opinion and i'm not gonna say you're wrong but they do have a whole league dedicated to baseball the brand of baseball you like for those of and, and and here's where i go to with this in the end of the at the end of the day, there's another brand of baseball people like me prefer, vastly prefer. Let us have it. And you know what? The discussion over the DH is one of the things that drives baseball attention. It's a constant talking point. It's like, you know, there are certain things you don't want to get rid of, like things that garner attention, you know. What, if you eliminate this, you're going to lose a little bit of attention on the sport from the casual fan because they're not going to feel the need to have any input on this topic. Oh, I don't know. It's like – I think, I, I think that it'll, it'll just turn like the news cycle. I really do. I think but, it's just going to blow with the news cycle, and we're all going to get over it. And No, I, I, I think I people really will, but I don't think people coming. talk about baseball as much without it. You're not going to hear Colin Cowherd talk about it, baseball, yeah, but, as much. Not that he's your prime example, but... Yeah, but people don't talk about cork in bats because no one's been caught with cork in their bat in the last 20 years, or whatever. Maybe. You, 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 you do have a point there that people will find something else, but I don't know of anything that's going to be as lightning rod a topic as the DH. It comes around this time of year, every single year. I looked, I wrote a piece for MMO last year. It was last February, so I was just a couple of weeks off. Um, and it, 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 you know, it was swirling at the same exact time. And um, Sure, it's a cool talking point, and it gets everybody riled up. But I, I just think it's inevitable, and I think that it's, you know, <sighs> sure, is the strategy side cool? Yes, but it, it, it looks like it may be on its way out. I think we just have to agree. <laughs> and you know what? Here's the thing. You prefer – you think differently. I think that's perfectly fine. We all should think differently. No one should have the same point of view. Yeah. People should – people should be – and we should respect that different people like baseball differently. I don't think that's a problem. I think when we're having this conversation, the fact that we're able to say is – you like it more. I like it more this way. Okay, we both have good talking points. We both have our own good opinions. I just think we need to address the DH more from that position than, you know, people going, oh, well, Bartolo Colon homered that one time. So, the <laughs> DHs, so DHs are stupid. Or well, people pitchers, going, pitchers who rake and pitchers hitting home runs is always cool, and that's it, it brings people joy. And I'm going to tie right. everything back. I'm going to tie everything together right now. Remember how Kobe brought us all that joy? 
Pitchers yeah. hitting home runs bring us joy, too. And taking things away from us does leave a little hole in us. And I know I can't compare the death of a person to the loss no. of a pitcher hitting, but things that bring us joy that aren't there anymore, it's it. That's and you know what? And you and you hit you hit a great point. The thing that makes baseball the best sport in the world, in my opinion, more than the strategy, more than this, it's the fact that more than any other sport, you can see something like Bartolo Colon homering. You're mm-hmm. not going to see Shaquille O'Neal hit a clock expiring three point buzzer. You're not going to see that. You're Just not going to go. You're not going to see um, Saquon Barkley playing free safety and getting a you know getting a game saving tackle. Um, you're not going to see Henrik Lundqvist shed off the gear, skate up the ice, and score a game tying goal in the final seconds of a game. These yeah. other sports create these barriers, but baseball. You can see Bartolo Colon hit a home run, not just a home run, but a home run in the hardest ballpark to hit a home run in in the entire game. Yeah. I don't want to <laughs> lose that one. I don't want to lose – Not that, and I know I said don't bring up Bartolo Colon specifically. No. But, but I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that surprise. I don't want to lose, you know, Noah Syndergaard having a two-home run game and letting up two home runs in the same game at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. Like, yeah, just, I, I, I could, I, I'm fine with giving that up. It had, it, it had its moment in time. I'm okay with that. And, you know, everybody is entitled to what they want yeah. to and oh, don't exactly. want to give yeah. up. Yeah, it, it's, it, dude, it, it's totally a matter of opinion. And, like, that's uh, – I wish social media would adopt this, this kind of civility when discussing things. But, I know. Uh, yeah, that's, we're, we're, a long, we're a long ways from that. Yeah, but uh, MD, I think that we touched, we hit our, we touched, we hit all our bases this week. Um, it feels like it. Um, it does. Anything, anything you got coming out? Anything you want to plug? Anything you want to say before we should log off here? I have one interesting piece I've been working on. Um, if you saw the thing where the sign stealing scandal dot com, the, there mm. was the pl- there was the person who took, um every at-bat from the 2017 season. I think it'll be ready Saturday. Maybe late tomorrow. Depends upon if I can touch it tonight before I go to bed. Yeah. I have a breakdown of how Jake Marisnik and J.D. Davis did against pitchers who are currently on the pitching staff. Just an interesting look. Um, against, Against Mets pitchers who are on this staff? Yeah, so basically Oh, oh uh, so when they're coming in they're coming into the clubhouse and they're gonna have to kinda explain themselves. Basically maybe? basically what they're every basically what everyone was afraid to with Carlos Beltran being able to manage a staff. Um basically what they're walking into. Um uh, Okay. N- not to give too much of a spoiler. Yeah. Um JD Davis probably had more Involvement vis-a-vis at bats with with respect to the Mets, um, but I don't think it's remotely an issue. I think it's just an interesting factoid. Just a little wrinkle, yeah. It's just a little wrinkle. Um, awesome. But I think the person, 
And there, there are going to be two people in that clubhouse who J.D. Davis and um, uh, Jake Murray, they have to answer to. Um, one is Marcus Stroman, who is livid about it. Um, and I'll have more on that in the article. And to a certain extent, Seth Lugo. Um, yeah. But I'm not going to pretend to know what Seth Lugo thinks or will say. It's yeah. just an interesting look into how they did and vis-a-vis the information that was put out there. A perspective piece from Mets Daddy. I can't wait. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. All right, man. Well, hey, John, it's always a pleasure having you on. We'll do this again. Um, you go, go ahead and get back to your fatherly duties. Yes. And uh, everybody, simply amazing. You know where to find us. If you like the show, please leave a you know, five-star review, subscribe, all those good things. You guys can find John on Twitter. It's at MetsDaddy underscore 2013. I got that. Not, not the underscore. That's the parody account, Tim. Oh, my God. <laughs> Why don't you just cite Daddy on Mets while you're at it? Oh, it's God. at MetsDaddy2013. <laughs> oh, my heart just dropped. I said it. It's I'm okay. Like, Wait a no. It's okay. But, uh, it's okay. You folks know where to find him. He's always out there. Oh God, that's a, really just a just a terrible way to finish things. Oh. I'm laughing, so it can't be that bad. Oh, all right, John. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Everybody, we'll see you next time. Have a good